Hi, uh, can everybody hear me? Well, cool. Um, so first I'd like to say, uh, you know, it, it was a great honor to get a, uh, a letter not so long ago uh, telling me about the celebration of John Bell. Uh, as an undergraduate, <clears throat> he was a bit of a heroic figure to me. Um, and, you know, it's on one of my slides, so I won't say too much, but uh, as an undergraduate, one of the things about quantum mechanics is that the things that it says about the nature of the world, if taken at face value, are so intuition-defying and so at odds with our experience, our subjective experience of the world, that for a long time um, after the initial development of quantum mechanics, uh, people didn't take what it said about the world seriously. It was almost like a calculational tool, uh, develop technologies, uh, calculate the outcomes of experiments, um, but John Bell was sort of relentless um, in his quest to understand the nature of the world. And uh, f for me, if you're a physicist, you got into it because you want to know how the world is, not to just describe the outcomes of experiments. And I believe that John Bell could fairly be said to have ushered in the second quantum revolution. Because in looking at what quantum mechanics says about the nature of our world, it allows for unprecedented pos uh, possibilities. And um, so, in my title of my lecture, um, you know, oftentimes, especially if you're talking to computing crowds or people who aren't physicists, they think of quantum computing as some kind of next, generate, uh, next generation uh, supercomputer. And it's decidedly not that. Um, the way I like to think about quantum computers, and I think this is, is true, is uh, there's a vast hidden reality that you don't experience subjectively um, that if accessed, um, quantum computers give you access to this hidden reality that gives you access to vast resources computationally um, where you can do things that you'll never be able to do uh, with classical computers. It doesn't matter how many cores you put together. Uh, I was at an NSA meeting one time and they said, you know, usually we're talking about uh, an order of magnitude or two, a factor of a thousand being some kind of amazing thing. You guys are talking about 10 to the 500th, 10 to, you know, where a single quantum processor would be more powerful than if all the atoms in the universe was a, a Pentium running for a billion years. I mean, these are the kinds of things people look forward to with quantum computers. Why? Um, so, to give you perspective, this is how I see quantum computing. This is the most ambitious vision of quantum computing. Throughout human history, there have been times when we've been able to harness new resources in nature. Uh, here I have fire, agriculture, you know, uh, industrial revolution, oil, nuclear energy, electricity. Um, there's usually associated with these resources in nature uh, what I call a couple different revolutions. The first one is just utilizing them. So fire originally, maybe you found a burning branch that was set off by some lightning, and I use the resource. I don't understand it, I can't control it, I can't create it. That's sort of phase one, but it's still uh, life-changing. Then at some point, we start to understand the process whereby fire comes into existence. We understand uh, the role that oxygen plays in the temperature of the fire. So now I can create it, I can make it hotter, now I can smelt metal, and that causes a whole second revolution. It's the same thing in agriculture. At first, you know, you plant some seeds, you notice that they grow, but later on you understand something about cross-pollinating them to create desired characteristics or manipulating them genetically. Um, and each of these at one point was a hidden resource. Fire, maybe not so much, but oil, we found this hidden resource underground, this black gook that has given rise to our entire civilization. 
or in the case of nuclear energy, the rearranging of some nuclei um, that give rise to unprecedented energies. Of course, unfortunately, the first thing we did with that was figure out how to make bombs and put little suns on people's cities. But I'm hoping if, if it's anything like the Time Magazine article uh, for November, that we'll be able to create sustained fusion reactions for a sustainable energy source for millennia to come. Um, okay, quantum computing is this kind of thing. But the hidden resource is something even more exotic than anything that came before it. Um, so quantum mechanics developed in the early 20th century um, in response to trying to understand the structure of atoms. Um, you know, when you see your textbooks when you're a kid, and you got a proton, electron going around in a circle, of course, if you take Newton's equations and combine it with electromagnetism, it tells you that atoms can't exist. The electrons will spiral into the nucleus as they radiate away. Um, but of course, atoms do exist. So what new conceptions could people uh, invent that could allow them to understand this, this strange behavior that was at odds with all of the physics that had come before it. Um, and what quantum mechanics, uh, you know, at, it kind of by the 1930s, which had been reasonably well developed, you can see here the Schrodinger equation, which tells you how the world works, um, gave rise to, I call this the first quantum revolution. It allowed us to understand the structure of atoms, the structure of matter, um, the structure of radiation, um, it allowed us to understand the energy source in stars, the fusion reactions. Um, the entire semiconductor revolution is based on this first understanding, band gaps in semiconductors and transistors, um, all of nanotechnology, nuclear energy, uh, molecular biology, all of this enabled by that early understanding um, changed the world. So what's the second revolution? The interesting thing about this is this equation which allows you to understand all of these things. It is the most accurate physical theory, the most uh, uh, broadly applicable, and the most thoroughly tested in the history of man. And for the last hundred years, there hasn't been a single experiment that defies what that equation describes, uh, not including the Dirac relativistic equation, but okay. So, uh, but when this equation is taken seriously, um, as a description of physical reality, it says some very strange things. So a lot of you have probably heard of Schrodinger's cat. Okay, and in this thought experiment by Schrodinger, who had a problem with his own equation, um, it describes a situation in which I have a cat in a box, I have a test tube with some cyanide in it, and uh, there's a hammer that can fall on the cyanide and kill the cat, and the <clears throat> it's activated by, say, a Geiger counter, and nearby I have a radioactive atom. And that radioactive atom, if, a, if it releases a helium nuclei, hits the Geiger counter, breaks the, the uh, cyanide, kills the cat. But what this equation says is that that radioactive atom can be in a state of superposition, which you mentioned. And that means that it can be in a state wherein the atom, uh, you have a radioactive event and you don't have a radioactive event simultaneously. Okay, that's not the way you're used to thinking about the world. There's this multiplicity in nature where every possible outcome is realized. And that's what that equation will say explicitly. Okay, so then what's the consequences? This was Schrodinger's attempt to percolate up the weirdness of quantum mechanics to macroscopic systems, which we interact with directly. And in this case, it would imply, okay, you emitted, you didn't emit, the Geiger counter clicked, it didn't, the hammer went down, and it didn't, and the cat's alive and a dead simultaneously. And of course, he said, 
this is ridiculous, we never see cats alive and dead at the same time, therefore there's something fundamentally wrong with quantum mechanics. So there were lots of attempts to make quantum mechanics connect with our subjective experience. So for those of you who know something about quantum mechanics, they say, well, whenever you look, maybe the cat was alive and dead before I looked, but the act of observation collapses that multiplicity onto a single state or the other. But there was no equation for that collapse. That's not physics, they just postulated that. And for decades, people act as if that's, from my point of view, that's not physics. There's no equation telling you how measurement collapses those possibilities. In the decades since, we've started to understand that, um, you know, if you look at an observer, so you'd hear the observer effects, you'd hear some crazy things like our consciousness uh, evokes all of reality because before we look, it's a sea of possibilities and consciousness acting on that provokes it into a particular state of existence. So these were the kinds of things that were going around because this was so strange. So they added a lot of ad hoc hypotheses to this basic equation to rationalize the results they got in experiments. But since then, and this is, uh, goes to the second revolution, which I believe started with John Bell. Um, the other thing about these measurements is if I set up that cat experiment many times in a row, you would measure it and some fraction of the time you see it dead, some fraction of the time you see it alive, and people would say, okay, I'm getting probabilities. So <clears throat> there's another arena in which we have probabilities. Say you're rolling dice. When you roll dice, um, do you really believe that we couldn't say what the dice would do if we knew everything about rolling that die? Um, most people, you know, even with classical mechanics, the only reason I am not quite sure what the dice is going to turn up is because I don't know how it started out. I don't know its initial state. I don't know how fast I threw the die, its initial position. But if I did, and I knew enough about air currents and all that, I could predictably tell you what the die was going to roll every single time. It's deterministic. Um, so, uh, there was a suggestion that the world really isn't that weird. Cats aren't in multiple states. There are hidden variables. There are things like not knowing how the die started out with these quantum systems. And that's why quantum mechanics gives us probabilities and not certainty. And if only we could find those, those hidden variables, we'd have a completely deterministic theory that would, would satisfy our, our world conception. And Bell did an amazing thing. Um, when hidden variables was suggested, they said, well, hidden variables versus multiple states, these are interpretations, and you can't really tell the difference between these things. So let's just use the equations and calculate and stop worrying about what it means. Uh, John Bell um, wouldn't have any of this. And he relentlessly examined what is the nature of our physical world. And in a brilliant theorem, which you, you hear about Bell's theorem, uh, he was able to develop um, uh, an inequality, but basically a mathematical equation. But what it said was this. If there are hidden variables um, and things have real properties, right, and they don't come into existence when you measure or there isn't this multiplicity like quantum mechanics suggests, then there should be certain kind of statistics that are obeyed in a set of experiments, which I won't go into deal, detail. But quantum mechanics, by using that Schrodinger equation, actually predicted something quite different than what he called his local realistic theories. Local realistic theories are theories that you're used to. Local, you don't uh, exceed the speed of light. You can't have things talk to each other faster than light, a la relativity. 
Realistic means things have real properties independent of me looking at them. Um, and uh, so it's kind of the, the, the theories that you're used to intuitively. Well, of course, he wrote his inequality. He defined an experiment you could do to decide whether this conception of reality we have, which is more intuitive, is the case, or if quantum mechanics with all its weirdness was the case. Those experiments were subsequently done, uh, Alan Aspect and company, and there's the conclusion. There is no physical theory of local hidden variables that will reproduce quantum mechanics. The world is weirder than you think. Um, one of those things is called quantum entanglement, which I'll talk about uh, now. But so what's, what's so weird about the world? Um, if you look at the Schrodinger equation and take it seriously and don't add a lot of ad hoc postulates. The first thing is superposition. So typically we think of an object, say going from point A to B, let's say that's an electron, as taking a single well-defined trajectory. Okay? In quantum mechanical sense, if you put that into the Schrodinger equation, uh, the electron will explore all possible paths simultaneously. And that doesn't mean that those paths represent possible paths. They're actually realized. And beyond that, um, these, these different paths that this electron takes can actually influence in each other, which they call quantum interference. So you can have systems that explore a vast number of possibilities simultaneously, and they can talk to each other under the right conditions. Um, entanglement, which bears very much on uh, um, Bell's theorem, so imagine I have a couple of pairs of dice, one in New York City, one in, in California, and you roll the dice a thousand times uh, and, and, and take down the results. If these were quantum entangled, and we don't do this with dice, but we can do these kinds of experiments with photons, you would be really surprised if a thousand rolls out of a thousand rolls or a million out of a million were always the same if the dice were at remote locations with no possibility of interacting between them. Okay, it would seem like magic. Well, this, in fact, happens. And this is actually the basis, for people who are talking about encryption, um, this is the basis of a technology now called quantum teleportation, wherein you can have information at one location that disappears, appears at a remote location without transmitting that information through the intervening space, which makes decryption with quantum computers maybe less interesting, interesting irony. Um, quantum tunneling. You can have an object on one side of a barrier through which it cannot penetrate. Um, it will disappear, appear on the other side of the barrier without uh, passing through that barrier. So these are all effects um, that have been, that have been uh, studied and uh, confirmed in laboratory experiments all over the world for decades. Um, and so you say, well, okay. What could I do with this if I could put this into computing systems? So I'm going to take a prosaic example. And I'm using prosaic examples to give you a conceptual kind of feeling for this, not so much a technical one. So let's say uh, solving problems. So we're going to be talking about computation and doing something you can't do otherwise. So if I take your intuitive view of the world, let's say I go to the Library of Congress, and there's 50 million books. I sneak into the library, I put an X on one of the pages. And then I say, what I'd like you to do is find the x, you have five minutes, okay? You say, well, okay, I can't do that. It would be a very improbable event. I'm gonna take one book off the shelf, sequentially one after the other, look for that x. It's gonna take me many lifetimes on average to find the x, okay? And I said, okay, but what if you could behave quantum dynamically? What if um, you could be the same physical matter, 
could live out 50 million parallel streams. In each one, I'm choosing a different book. Well, in one of those streams, I find that book immediately. But here's the problem. You remember if I said, let's say I open the door to query you about which book it is. Well, um, if, I, if I look at the standard way of looking at quantum mechanics, I would encounter one of you with some probability out of the 50 million, likely the one that didn't find the book, okay? So you need another ingredient. You need this quantum interference. I talked about the streams interacting and influencing each other. So you could think in this prosaic example that of those 50 million selves, uh, just like when you look at yourself in a series of mirrors or something, the self that found the book holds it up, says it's page 238 in this volume of Shakespeare. I've shared the information across all those parallel streams. And then if I talk to uh, one of you, that information has been shared across all of those parallel realities and you get the answer in 30 seconds instead of many lifetimes, right? That in a nutshell is quantum computing. Question is, if the world at its most fundamental level behaves that way, why don't you? Um, and how could I build computing systems that would harness this kind of dynamics? Um, I'll get to that in a minute, because for a long time, people didn't know the answer to this. Now we have a pretty good handle about why you don't experience the world this way at macroscopic scales, typically, and why you do see this dynamics routinely in microscopic experiments, but that's no longer true because we can now build macroscopic systems that demonstrate this entire repertoire of quantum dynamics. So, um, with regard to computing, another thing that was going on was people, so, so people in the 80s and 90s that started looking at something called decoherence theory, taking the Schrodinger equation seriously, getting rid of the ad hoc hypotheses like uh, measurement, creating reality. Um, there was another thing going on in computing that, uh, that you alluded to, and that is Moore's law. So this shows you a short history of computing. We started off with mechanical calculators, electromechanical, transistors, now integrated circuits. And for a long time, people thought of computation as kind of an abstract thing. The mathematical models, like the Turing models of computation, were based on abstractions. So when people said, what is, what is it, uh, people started asking the question, what's the ultimate limits to computation, right? You can think about your brain as a computer, and it gives rise to consciousness, unless you think there's some special agency that's required for that. Um, information scientists, uh, came to a, th this is a really powerful statement, it sounds obvious when you say it, but it was, a, it was a really big deal. Information is physical. So all information is encoded on a physical substrate. So whether it's the magnetic domains on a disk drive, the states of a transistor inside your computer, the arrangement of neural connections in a brain, information is physical. And therefore, what a computer can do ultimately or not do depends on the laws of physics. It's not a mathematical abstraction. And uh, this realization, you said, okay, well, what are the laws of physics that will tell me the ultimate limits of computation? Quantum physics, because that's the most foundational physics at the base of everything. Um, okay, so what a computer can do depends on its physical resources. Whether you had a mechanical calculator to the integrated circuits of today, they all processed information with the classical dynamics that you're used to. In none of these computing systems is the information uh, are you using superposition to play out a vast number of possibilities simultaneously. You're not using entanglement or quantum tunneling. Although, 
In the semiconductors that underlie the, the, the transistors, you have band gaps that are due to these electron wave functions interfering. Um, so they depend on those effects, but the information's not being processed with those effects, okay? Um, now, why is it important, say, to build ever more powerful computers? Don't we have enough? Um, the first thing in terms of Moore's law is that we're naturally approaching atomic dimensions in the constituents that we build computers out of. So what this is, that tells you the number of electrons involved in turning uh, a transistor on and off. And you can see projections, this is kind of from Intel, uh, you know, by 2020 or so, you're going to, the difference between a transistor being on and off will be a single electron. Now, by the way, single electron transistors already exist. They use them in a specialized sort of research. Um, they're not being built at scale, but people are going to get there. And you can't get any smaller than a single electron transistor. So this is one of the natural limits to Moore's law in terms of miniaturization. Um, the other thing is that um, even, if, even if you did get to single electron transistors and went to 3D integration of all those transistors, there are problems for, that will forever remain beyond our grasp as humans um, as long as all you're harnessing is classical physics. And there's some very straightforward examples. Now this, this is kind of a plot that a complexity theorist would generate. So complexity theory is a discipline wherein you're trying to uh, characterize how hard a problem is to solve. And better than saying it takes 10 years or 20 years, absolute numbers mean a lot less than scaling. So what you're really interested in is as you make a problem bigger, how much longer does it take to solve? And sometimes, or how much more energy or computation time? And so there's a class of problems kind of arbitrarily called tractable where we say if you increase the problem size and the time to solution increases kind of like a polynomial, like the square of the problem size or linear, we call those kinds of problems tractable, that we could put significant resources to solve them in reasonable time frames. And now, of course, if that was end of the 10th, that's not the case. But it turns out that most problems that scale polynomially, it's usually two or three or something. Um, there's another class of problems that scale exponentially with the problem size. And these are the problems that we'll never be able to catch up to because as you add elements to a classical computer, so add an, another xenon processor and another one, the, the computational power scales linearly at best. There are problems that scale exponentially and the world's replete with them. So as an example, um, Simulation of quantum systems. So if people want to simulate the complex dynamics of a molecule, um, those molecules go into superposition states. Um, all the interactions between all the electrons that you have to take into effect, and, and that electron's not anywhere in particular in a superposition of multiple positions, and you have to sum over all of that, um, take exponential resources to solve. So you'll never be able to do truly high-fidelity simulations of molecules. And if you want to develop better catalysts, uh, better drugs, um, with, uh, with a very detailed understanding, it's not something you'll be able to do classically ever. Um, complex combinatorial optimization. So this is an example. These are mundane examples. So I flew in from LAX to Ireland. Scheduling of airlines. 
So figuring out how to schedule all of your planes when you, and through all of the different cities and all the different combinations, that blows up exponentially. The number of possible ways you could do that to, say, minimize fuel consumption. FedEx has this problem. What routing strategy do I use for my millions of packages to try to minimize fuel consumption and energy and cost? Nobody can do that problem. People take supercomputers, they run the best algorithms that they can, they're heuristics, but they'll never actually achieve optimal solutions. Um, factoring large numbers, this underlies our RSA encryption. Um, so just taking very large number, 300 digit number, and find the prime factorization of that. Scales, actually not exponentially, but sub-exponentially, super polynomially, but this is another problem for which uh, the largest supercomputers on Earth running for a billion years uh, wouldn't be able to factor that number, which is kind of an amazing thing. Okay, so, uh, and here's just one example. If I looked at the number of computations, say, to uh, solve the Schrodinger equation for a caffeine molecule, it's, you know, you have to solve like 10 to the 61 equations, take a supercomputer that's a teraflop, uh, good luck. And for something really interesting like uh, HIV protease, um, uh, 10 to the 602 computations to fully characterize its state. These are, will forever remain beyond our capabilities unless we could harness the quantum dynamics in real processors. Um, so a brief history of quantum computing. Uh, Hugh Everett um, taking the Schrodinger equation seriously and saying it's universal and getting rid of ad hoc hypotheses. What it implies is that you can get this branching of all possibilities for a given physical system that can be realized simultaneously. This is called many worlds for that reason. Um, Feynman um, was talking about, okay, as we make processors smaller and smaller, uh, eventually we're going to have quantum dynamics. Shouldn't we take advantage of it rather than seeing it as a nuisance? And uh, recognize that even if you took a relatively small scale quantum system uh, of a few quantum objects, um, the uh, the number, well, the, the number of numbers you need to characterize even small quantum systems grows exponentially, so we'll never be able to simulate quantum systems. Uh, David Deutsch was the first person to describe a universal quantum computer. So he described how uh, the basic theoretical construct, a computer that harnesses these strange quantum dynamics and how it could be used to do something you couldn't do classically. The problems he chose, though, were rather abstract mathematical problems that didn't have direct applicability in the world. And then what set the field on fire was 1994. Peter Shore at Bell Labs, computer scientist, found a way saying, okay, assume you build these mythical machines that harness these dynamics. He wrote an algorithm that showed that you could factor very large numbers uh, in short periods of time, say a few seconds or minutes versus a billion years on a supercomputer, and you could crack uh, our most powerful encryption methods, RSA. Of course, when that paper came out, who paid attention? DOD, NSA, everybody started funding the field. I personally think that that application's not very important, but uh, it got the field funded. Um, okay. So in terms of building quantum computers, you'll often hear about qubits. So when you want to engineer a real system, um, you often want to take simple objects uh, that are robust, uh, that you can build something more complex out of. So these, this is an abstraction of a qubit. You'll see some object there and assume, unlike a transistor, that's either a zero or a one. I can build an object that 
I can put in a superposition of being both states simultaneously. Okay, so you see that first one is in two states simultaneously. And now, if you concatenate that with another object, you get four states. And concatenate that with another qubit, and you get eight possibilities. So if I could build a system of quantum, op behaved quantum mechanically, each of which could be in a couple of states, and I concatenate them, in principle, the number of possibilities they could represent grows exponentially like those problems we would like to solve. So this is a physical system that's rich enough to maybe attack those really uh, big problems. And uh, in the 80s and then 90s, uh, you know, a group, say, at NIST in Colorado, um, they were working on controlling individual atoms very precisely, right? Um, they were able to take, uh, say, beryllium ions. This is something, a cartoon of something called an ion trap. You can trap these ions in electromagnetic fields. You can interact with lasers individually. And what they were able to do is each one of these they could put in a couple states simultaneously, um, uh, say a spin up and a spin down state that represented a zero and one. They could put them in superpositions. They could have this array represent um, uh, a number of states simultaneously, like two to the n, and build a little quantum register out of this and do basic operations. And actually they've factored 15, which isn't such a big deal, but they did it using Shor's algorithm showing the, the, this, the whole set of quantum phenomenon, superposition, entanglement, quantum interference, and be able to read out an answer. Um, and uh, so this got everybody very excited. Um, one of the problems is that a system like this built out of microscopic constituents is very difficult to engineer at scale. Nobody knows how to take uh, if, if I want a thousand ions um, and create a technology based on that, how would I scale up? There's no infrastructure, uh, and, and atoms are really small, and they're really difficult to control. Um, so, what you'd like to have, uh, and this is David Deutsch's description of quantum computing, the first technology allows us tasks to be formed in collaboration with parallel universes, and that's what he means. You can have these parallel streams that are, are each doing a, a different part of a, a very complex calculation that can share information across them. But what's really hard about doing that, and why don't we have quantum computers now? Uh, well, we do, but. Um, so here's another development, uh, a really important development, starting in the 80s and until now. And this is called decoherence. Why quantum computers can be really hard to build. Okay. So they have this little cartoon here that shows the classical world over there where everything's definite and this quantum mechanical world where we see uh, you know, multiplicity of states, whether it's clouds or cats. And where's the divide? It used to be thought there's some natural dividing line between classical and quantum. And why, where does the weirdness go? Okay, so I'm gonna give you another analogy with my library example. What people discovered was one of the big differences between microscopic and macroscopic systems is if I take an electron in this room right now, and it's flying around, the chance of its scattering off an air molecule or a photon is actually quite low. Because it's so small, uh, you could think about yourself traveling through the solar system, how often do you hit a planet, right? So they don't interact significantly with their environmental surroundings. But a macroscopic object, you know, like this, this uh, glass is, uh, right now, it's being bombarded by billions of air molecules, radiation fields from the light you can see and that you can't. 
If I put it on a table, it's sitting on a surface where the, the molecules are wiggling. All of those interactions historically had not been put into that Schrodinger equation, right? So what happens when you do? If, I want, if, if the Schrodinger equation is universal, take this object and add all the interactions with it, and you see a fascinating thing. And it's called decoherence. And what I mean by that is imagine, uh, so I'll go back to my library example. In order to get complex tasks done with this quantum dynamics, uh, imagine I have my different selves looking at different books in the library, um, and they're all on task, and they can communicate. In that sense, they're coherent. They're next to each other. They can have a conversation. It's called quantum interference. But now let's say there's windows in the library, and one of my selves sees a drinking fountain. He's thirsty. Another one sees uh, you know, a cafe um, or a friend that they would like to talk to, and the environment starts pulling the streams apart. So the environment interacts differently on different streams. The streams kind of part, and they no longer communicate. And when they no longer communicate, they lose the power of their collaboration. Now, there's a prosaic example, but this is exactly what happens in these systems. If you apply uh, the Schrodinger equation with the environmental degrees of freedom, what you'll find for those elements in the superposition is that they lose their coherence and they become these quasi-classical-like branches that no longer interfere with each other, and you lose the power of the computation. You, in your own subjective experience of your life, you're being bombarded by air molecules, radiation fields, you're strongly decohered. Uh, if there was another version of yourself, you'd never know it. Um, so this, was, this understanding of decoherence allowed people to generate the classical world of our subjective experience um, by using a universal Schrodinger equation and taking into account the environmental interactions. So, as soon as I say that to you, what possibility does it allow for? Ah, what if I took a macroscopic object and removed the environmental degrees of freedom, uh, the air molecules, the radiation fields, I took it to low temperature so there's not a thermal fluctuations, would I see quantum dynamics at macroscopic scales? Um, answer, yes. In 2000, and this was actually predicted by Tony Leggett, the Nobel Prize winner, he predicted this would be the best object to go look for it. Um, this is something called a superconducting quantum interference device. But this is a, a ring of metal. It could be aluminum, could be niobium. Um, at very low temperature, superconductors exhibit macroscopic quantum dynamics, but you'll have a ring where the current that goes around experiences no electrical resistance. And what they did at the uh, uh, State University of New York in Stony Brook is uh, Tony Leggett had written a paper in 1985 that predicted how, uh, how much of the environment you would have to reduce, you know, how, what pressure, um, uh, what temperature, what, uh, what degree of radiation you could tolerate and still see macroscopic quantum dynamics in this object. When, when I read that paper uh, in 1997, it was like these uh, conditions are experimentally realizable. This was really exciting. So what they did is they took that ring, they took it to millikelvin temperatures, a few thousands of a degree above absolute zero. They went to ultra-high vacuum. They did the proper radiation shielding, and when they did that, they put this in a quantum superposition state wherein all of a circulating current, all of the currents going clockwise, 
and all of the currents going counterclockwise simultaneously. And if you say, you know, you, you can't have all of it go one way and the other. That's exactly what I said. Um, and that's a quantum superposition. And because it was macroscopic, very macroscopic, you can see this with your naked eye, uh, it was in the New York Times and it said Schrodinger's cat lives. Quantum mechanics works up to the scale of these squids and there's no reason to believe it can't work up to larger scales and that it's completely universal. There's no evidence to the contrary. So this becomes that quantum object that can be in two states simultaneously that I could concatenate to create an exponential uh, capability to search through a number of possibilities, right? So uh, at D-Wave, one of our first decisions, if you look at all the competing physical platforms you can build quantum computers out of, um, we didn't look at microscopic systems. We know that to build systems at scale is extraordinarily difficult. There's no technology to do that. But these are quite common objects if you're a superconducting electronics guy. We know how to build an uh, integrated circuit that we can couple to these qubits to build control circuitry that will not disturb their quantum states because the superconducting circuitry around them doesn't dissipate energy, any energy with resistive heating. Um, you can move signals back and forth with no energy dissipation. So this allowed for, for a really exciting possibility. Um, okay, so here's this exciting possibility. Then the question is, why should we do this? Um, I think it's very important that quantum computing is gonna take a lot of money, it's gonna take a lot of time, it's gonna involve a lot of researchers, and when I was thinking about this, certainly Shor's algorithm wasn't nearly enough motivation with a single customer to break encryption codes. Uh, I see quantum computing as, as potentially much more important resource for us as a species. So we've built this enormously complex civilization. And it's generated problems that transcend human understanding. And this is something that's not often appreciated. Um, so this, these are graphical representations of, in a number of different areas, um, we have staggering complexity in all areas of human endeavor. So that's a social network. These, that represents interactions between drugs and um, gene products, proteins. A financial network, uh, energy distribution networks. All of these systems have similar character. You have lots of uh, entities. They could be, you know, if you're looking at a, a, a portfolio for finance company, you have companies and stocks and all this stuff. They all interact in these incredibly complex ways. And let's say you want to ask, you want to optimize something about that. So in fact, we got a lot of money from Goldman Sachs who said we'd like to minimize the risk of our portfolios. Tell us how you would arrange um, the investments in all these disparate stocks given that they interact and have various correlations between them to minimize risk. No one can do that calculation. They try on supercomputers, but they're not going to get an optimal solution. Um, same thing, interactions between drugs and humans. The number of factors are staggering. They interact in incredibly complex ways. All of those things blow up exponentially like that uh, graph I showed you. And even though we have staggering computational capabilities, we have the internet where everybody's networking with everybody else. Um, we have massive, well, that's a Google data center. We're generating data, massive amounts of data. We're creating machines that learn from experience, neural nets. Um, even with all of that, that's not enough to solve the scale of problems that we have as a civilization. What these problems allow for is, not only do we have vast inefficiencies, but we have the potential for 
massive system crashes. A lot of what goes on in, say, financial markets has nothing to do with just avarice, uh, say, at Wall Street. There's a lot of that. But it's that we don't have models for how to run these systems effectively. Uh, Alan Greenspan said that. Our models are completely inadequate. And the reason they are is because the complexity is staggering. Um, we're working with Lockheed Martin right now, and this is scary stuff. They talk about the defense grid, right, defense network. You can have um, all these satellites and radars and get all this intel, and you know, maybe one day you have a heat signature in one of your satellites because of some electrical components, some birds fly in front of a radar, and you launch on Moscow, right? We have systems of staggering complexity that are uh, prone to massive system crashes, and they're already vastly inefficient. Um, okay, so what do you do? Uh, what we did at D-Wave is we looked at all these physical systems like ion traps, photonics, um, you know, uh, lattice, uh, optical lattices, and you know, deemed that building things out of microscopic components is not something that's going to happen anytime soon, and there are staggering difficulties, and there's no existing infrastructure you can leverage. With superconducting components, that's a quantum computer chip uh, built at D-Wave with 512 qubits. We built them out of these, uh, these squid rings, um, and we coupled them to something called single-flux quantum logic. We can send pulses of single-flux quanta, um, so magnetic fields that's quantized, into rings. We have a routing system where we can move magnetic flux around at the speed of light with no dissipation to program those quantum rings, evolve them, and read out uh, answers. Um, Another thing that's really important is, let's say, okay, so we have a rationale for building quantum computers. All the requisite quantum dynamics have been demonstrated. Um, there's, there's still problems to solve, but we've seen the requisite quantum phenomenon. We have a phys physical system we can build a scalable technology out of. Um, but, but what kind of, uh, more, as important is what kind of organization you build to get there. So I used to run uh, one of the largest DARPA projects in the US. Um, I saw, you know, vast inefficiencies. Uh, fickle funding, lots of bureaucracy, uh, a lot of disparate groups with different cultural identities that didn't know how to interact effectively. And the idea for D-Wave was build a mini Manhattan project. Um, we looked at best-in-class companies, Solera Genomics, right? It's like there was a big international effort to sequence DNA. It was going to take billions of dollars and decades. Uh, uh, Craig Venter said, I'll do it in three years for $300 million, and did. Um, there's uh, SpaceX. Uh, everyone said, oh, you'll never do orbital flight. Well, they're delivering all the packages to the space station these days. Elon Musk and crew. Fusion, people have been talking about uh, forever. Uh, Canadian company, General Fusion, um, has built a fusion reactor. And maybe in the, by mid-century, mid something like a small entrepreneurial company will get there first. Um, and D-Wave was modeled on companies that are highly successful, fast, and you said, what are the characteristics of those entities that make things happen in the world? They share a single vision, and they're purpose-driven. Do or die, and willing to take big risks. It's not like, if that doesn't work, I'll work on some other project. Um, fast and rapid prototyping. I just told you that quantum systems, you know, above about 30 qubits, you can't simulate their dynamics on a supercomputer. So you have to have a rapid prototyping philosophy. We have to build a chip, uh, test, redesign in very quick cycles because we're already at 500 qubits where there's no classical resources that can analyze what's going on in that chip at scale. Um, 
leveraging the best available existing resources. I worked in superconducting electronics for a long time. We talked about replacing uh, CMOS for ultra, uh, uh, you know, exaflop-like scale supercomputing. The problem is no one could build devices at scale in that field because for years all they did was use a few physicists in a boutique fab and no one could build things at scale. So at D-Wave, when we said we're going to have to build superconducting uh, circuits at scale, we took superconducting technology to Silicon Valley, trained up a bunch of Silicon Valley engineers, and in two years bypassed the world's capability in superconducting electronics because we leveraged an industry that had spent trillions um, and we leveraged all of their expertise to get there fast. And this is, this is a really important lesson. When I was uh, on my DARPA project, I saw people not knowing how to leverage existing expertise. You know, I saw physics students trying to do microwave engineering instead of hiring a microwave engineer, right? Um, so lean, creative, fast. Um, so this is D-Wave. Um, we began our technology development in 2005. Um, privately owned, we have investors like uh, Draper Fisher Jurvetson, who invested in SpaceX and Tesla and SolarCity and all that. Um, we're developing these superconducting quantum processors. We've got about 130 employees. We've raised $170 million to date. We have more US patents in quantum computing than all other companies combined. Um, and we have this unique infrastructure where we can innovate at every level, the design, fabrication, test, theory, applications. And visionary uh, partners who understand what quantum computing can offer the world have engaged with us with our early generations of quantum processors, and that includes NASA and Google, who have built the Quantum AI Center um, around our technology, uh, Lockheed, and USC, and Information Science Institute. Um, in terms of the different models of quantum computing, not only do you have to look at the physical platform that you're going to build, superconductors, ion traps, quantum dots, you also have to look at different models. Most people are pursuing uh, what's called the gate model. That's analogous to building gates in standard CMOS logic where you have and, or, not gates, and you concatenate a lot of these gates to build arbitrary logic. Um, when we looked at all these different models, we said, what's realizable in our lifetime? There's severe difficulties with the gate model. It's very sensitive to decoherence, so a little bit of noise can ruin your computation. It, uh, it uses excited energy levels, um, which are thermodynamically unstable. Um, so that's a problem. It always wants to relax to the ground state. Um, and it, it, re it requires high-frequency engineering. You have to send in, you know, usually something like microwaves to drive the interactions. And doing high-frequency engineering is difficult classically. And if you couple that to, like, lots of qubits, good luck with lots of crosstalks and decoherence. So, um, we chose another model that had been developed at uh, MIT called adiabatic quantum computing, which is more like um, physical computing. It's more like analog computing. I'll describe it briefly. Um, so classical annealing, um, you know, it's an ancient process wherein people, let's say, wanted to make a, a better sword. Um, you'd like the the, the tightest binding between the atoms in that sword, and people used to heat it up so the atoms could move around and explore different configurations. And if you slowly cool it, eventually it'll cool into a state where you get a better sword. Um, people used this idea in computing, starting with a guy named Kirkpatrick. They said, you know, there's a lot of optimization problems in the world, 
where you want to minimize some quantity. I want to minimize fuel consumption for FedEx. I want to minimize the risk in my portfolio. Um, physical systems tend to evolve to their lowest energy states. So if I can translate a math problem, right, say minimize risk, into minimize the energy of a physical system, um, I might be able to build that physical system and let it go to its ground state, and that would represent the answer to a complex optimization problem. Um, so, okay, what kind of physical system can we build to realize this? So, uh, Richard Feynman, another inspiration, and Seth Lloyd at MIT, uh, Feynman a long time ago said, okay, is there some physical system that you could build, the simplest physical system, that could simulate all other physical systems in nature? And after looking at uh, the physics, uh, uh, field theories, and the structure of, of the physical uh, law, he said, yeah, I think it could be a set of interacting spins. So you can think about these little magnets that can interact with each other. Um, and if you, if you have the right interactions and I can build these spins, I should be able to model any other physical system with that system. Okay, so we decided to D-Wave to build that. Each one of these spins um, is one of those loops. If current goes one way, you get a field up. Current goes the other way down, that's up and down. And I know how to put it in a superposition of being both. Um, I can build controllable interactions between those spins so that they want to be the same way, like they're correlated, positively correlated or anti-correlated. Or anti if you were, say, putting a problem on this, let, let's say I use the stock example, there might be two stocks that go up at the same time, you know, oil and fertilizer prices, right? There might be other things that are anti-correlated. So you can capture correlations between variables, positive or negative. You can capture how much they're correlated by the strength of the interactions. Um, and it turns out that, you know, there's a mathematical equation there that represents the energy of that system. And it depends on every, each spin uh, having a local field on it that tells it it wants to be up or down a little bit more. And then they have interactions with their surroundings. But this turns out to be, if you ask the following question, okay, for a given set of interactions, um, so you could imagine it like this. Okay, you're all sitting in your seats. Uh, let's say you're sitting up. And around you, there's people who say, I want you to turn upside down, I want you to turn right side up, and they all speak with different volumes. They're all trying to influence you, okay? That's not such a hard problem because you just add up their influences and you either sit up or down, right? But now they are influenced by their neighbors telling them what to do to sit up or down with various magnitudes. And if I did that to all of you and you said, okay, how do I arrange all of you to satisfy all those relationships? That's a horrendous problem. And it's, it's part of a class of problems called NP-complete, which are these problems that scale exponentially. And, the re and it's called complete because if you can solve one of these problems of this class, it can map to any other of the problems in this class. And all of the problems I mentioned are in this class. So we built a physical system whose evolution um, to its ground state can answer uh, these very complex problems. Um, Okay, this is an actual, uh, what's called a unit cell of a D-Wave chip. So there's the abstract little ring. What we've actually done that is squished it and stretched it out. So you have this long squid, um, current going one way, up, current the other way, uh, a zero. Um, you can see we have four vertical and four horizontal qubits. Where they intersect, they interact. And we have these controllable interactions. Um, and then we take each one of these, we call a unit cell with eight qubits, 
is reproduced in a tile, and we can build a large-scale set of interacting spins, okay? Um, now, what you'll notice here is that most of what's there is not qubits. Most of it's control circuitry. Each of those qubits is manufactured. Manufactured qubits have discrepancies between them. We developed a technology to tune out in real time all of the discrepancies between all the qubits, so they're essentially identical. Um, we can program in a problem by putting fields on all the spins and controlling all their interactions. We know how to evolve it quantum mechanically, where it used quantum tunneling um, and entanglement and superposition. Uh, we've confirmed all those resources exist in our processor. Um, there's an actual 512 qubit chip mounted um, and bonded up. Um, now, we have to worry about those environmental degrees of freedom that can cause decoherence between the different branches that it wants to explore. In this case, what does the spin system explore? It has different configurations. All the spins can be up, they could all be down, half up, half down, and if you have 500 of them, there are two to the 500th ways to arrange that spin uh, matrix, that spin lattice. And the question is, out of two to the 500th arrangements, which arrangement of up and down is the answer to a difficult problem? So if you use quantum dynamics, I can search through that space much more efficiently than if you're turning the spins up and down individually, even quickly, on a classical simulator. Um, but in order to see that dynamics, I have to protect this from those environmental degrees of freedom. Um, so this is an example of you know, a complex landscape where each point on the landscape is a particular uh, arrangement of the spins, and the lowest valley is the answer. So there's some arrangement of spins that would be the lowest energy. Okay, um, okay so there's the chip. Uh, we have to do very careful things, like even the metal there, oxygen-free, copper, gold-plated. Um, you can see the chip there, and then inside a little box, radiation shield. All of the lines going that are, to, are superconducting, so there's no dissipation, no heat. Um, this then, um, we have to, here's kind of an interesting thing about quantum computers. You say, well, if I interact with it, maybe I'll decohere it. So how do I interact with it to tell it what to do, but not decohere the system so I don't get the advantage of the quantum dynamics? And the answer that Seth Lloyd, I'll put it his way, said, well, when you talk to quantum systems, you have to talk really softly. Um, so the really softly is we have all of this uh, in-house built filtering. So you get exactly just the signal you need to steer the quantum evolution without decohering all of those different uh, possibilities being played out. Um, all of this you can see in another radiation can. And of course now this chip's sitting on a physical substrate. I don't want it wiggling, which is, means the temperature of the chip. So we take this all down to millikelvin. This is, you see the chip in its radiation shield, and then this is a lot of complicated stages of cooling, also using superfluids. So superfluid helium, which is a quantum dynamical fluid at macroscopic scales, we use that to do our cooling, and we get to uh, kind of 150 times colder than interstellar space, about 10 millikelvin. Um, that's all packaged up uh, with a lot of other radiation shield. It goes into something called a Faraday cage. is a big cage that keeps out electromagnetic radiation from the outside world. Um, the other thing we have to do is the magnetic fields of the Earth, even though they're very weak. We've developed a method to reduce the magnetic fields the chip sees 
by 50,000 times, so we reduce that. That also uses quantum dynamical magnetometers to measure the magnetic field in multiple directions, cancel them all out. So that chip in the end is one of the coldest, most magnetic-free places in the universe. This is colder than interstellar space and in the, the background radiation, right? Um, so that we can realize those quantum dynamics. And we've been working with groups around the world to look at potential applications as our technology evolves. This is one of them. Um, so say in cancer, um, the most, can the most uh, uh, effective cancer drug in, in history was something called Gleevec. And it was associated with a mutation of a certain enzyme. So there you can see kind of a representation of a shape of an enzyme. And uh, you know, most of medicine for a long time, they don't understand mechanisms underlying the proliferation of cancer cells. They simply try to cut it out, irradiate it, and or give you chemotherapy, uh, which is sort of black magic. They don't know why it works. In the case of this, uh, um, there was a researcher, Janusz Sawadzki, who identified the structure of a set of enzymes called kinases. Um, they regulate cell growth. You can have mutations in your genome that will cause a change in shape of those key enzymes that no longer regulate cell growth and proliferate cancer. So once that was determined, the next thing to do is this aberrant enzyme. I could look through a database of 13 million synthesizable molecules and find one of those molecules that bound and fit into the active catalytic region of that molecule. And when you do that, it shut off those processes. Uh, when Gleevec was first developed, people with that mutation, given that, that molecule, almost 100% efficacy, right? So this is the age of targeted medicine. But the thing is, the computations to look through all that very uh, huge database of patterns and get to match the right molecule with the right aberrant enzyme is computationally very expensive. So if you, uh, you can change that into find the lowest energy state, a pattern recognition problem can be turned into find um, the uh, lowest energy configuration of that spin network. We have a whole application group that does that. Take the hard part of your problem and translate it into that spin lattice. With uh, Google, the kind of things they're interested in, say machine learning, uh, image recognition, speech recognition. Um, they're building neural nets, like you have in your brain. So you have neurons, the interconnections between the neurons and how strong each of those interconnections give you all the abilities that you have. Um, so in this case, what they want to know is, uh, all right, how do I arrange the interconnections between the neurons and the strengths of those connections such that it's the kind of structure that uh, recognizes natural speech, say, okay? The process of figuring out what those weights are, there's lots of combinations, right? And you have to go through a huge search space of the interconnectivity between the neurons before you find the right one that minimizes the errors that that network makes. So we were able to change, um, minimize the error that a neural net makes into minimize the energy of that spin network that looks rather like a neural net. Um, so this is another area that people are very interested in because training large-scale neural nets um, to do pattern recognition on large data sets uh, or understand natural language and pattern recognition, all of that stuff, are, are really difficult problems that would benefit from quantum computing. Um, so this is the, uh, that's a system at Google, NASA uh, Artificial Intelligence Center. This is the one at uh, Lockheed USC. Um, people have run millions of problems on these guys. 
for a whole host of potential applications. And uh, the question is, you know, where are we at? So most of the quantum computing systems in the world are just a few qubits uh, that, that can solve, you know, sort of trivial problems. Um, this, this was done kind of a while ago. It's a little older slide. But what we did when we got to 500 qubits uh, is we took a commercial product, uh, IBM project called CPLEX, which is an optimization solver. So, okay, I want to optimize some quantity. There's lots of variables. Find uh, the particular combination of variables that minimize some quantity of interest, right? Um, and when we were at 500 qubits and we ran our processor, say, versus that commercial product, um, you know, this is at one point we had 118,000 times faster to getting the solution and then 300,000 fa times faster to solution. So what it meant was we had built a processor uh, that harnessed quantum dynamics. Uh, it's not a toy. It was doing a, a significant calculation. So this is the first time in history. And uh, the only thing about that was uh, there was a caveat. Uh, people at IBM and others said, well, your processor is specially designed for this kind of optimization. This is more general. So since then, whole groups have come up and taken best-in-class processors with specialized algorithms specifically to go head-to-head -head with the D-Wave uh, early generation processors. Now, the interesting thing about that is um, when they did that, they were able to match the performance of the 500 qubit processor. But these are very mature processors that took 60 years and a trillion dollars and millions of man-hours and these are early days for us. Uh, since then, we have a 1,000 qubit processor uh, that's starting to exceed these very specialized algorithms and single core processors. Um, so that's very exciting. And by the way, the, the, what they came up with, it, the way it looks through the different spin configurations is one at a time, but real fast. So we compared it against a system that could change the spin configuration and me measure the energy 200 billion times a second and we're competitive or exceeding that. Um, this shows the progress that we've made. When we were at 128 qubits in two years, uh, our processor sped up by a factor of 300,000. Um, we've been on a Moore's-like trajectory ourselves, where every year we've been doubling the number of qubits, but we're not simply taking a singular design and just scaling it up uh, naively. Every aspect of this processor gets better every generation. You know, less analog errors, uh, less noise, more quantum dynamical, uh, different kinds of interconnect topologies. So uh, the, the guiding principle of our, of our company was fast, um, learn fast. Um, that's our 1,000 qubit processor that just came out. Uh, Google just signed another seven-year deal. They want all our generations as they come out. Um, and so they're running this thing through its paces. Um, something I thought I would mention toward the end of my talk is that it's not just quantum computing that's interested in these, in these quantum technologies. So a fascinating area of study for the biologists in the audience is quantum biology. So the efficiency of photosynthesis, um, the collection efficiency of photons in plants um, is very high. And people used to have models for a photon, you know, hitting uh, a plant. Uh, uh, electron hole pairs being generated, and, and the, that energy of the electron, sort of the electron um, diffusively going to this reaction center. And when you did that calculation, you didn't get the efficiencies people see in plants. Then people with femtosecond lasers and doing some experiments in theory have discovered that it looks like what the electrons are doing is taking all possible paths to the reaction center 
and you're getting a much more efficient results because there's quantum coherent dynamics going on in plants at room temperature in wet, warm biochemistry. Um, they've looked at our sense of smell. We've always thought about sense of smell kind of classically. I have a, a smell receptor, there's an odorant molecule, and when they combine kind of lock and key-like, uh, it sends a signal to my brain for a certain scent. Now it looks like quantum tunneling is involved in our sense of smell, where um, uh, tunneling of electrons in the odorant, the rate of tunneling is determining the smell and not this lock and key mechanism. We're seeing even in birds, this is a little bit more controversial maybe, but it looks like they've done experiments that indicate that quantum entanglement might be used by birds for navigation. Um, so this is, this is incredibly interesting and even, you know, the complexity uh, and life in the universe may depend on quantum dynamics fundamentally, not some kind of classical dynamics that's come out of that quantum dynamics. Uh, consciousness, I think, is a lot more controversial. I think we probably don't need quantum coherence for consciousness. And uh, just to quote uh, Seth Lloyd, it's, it's almost any piece of matter if you shine the right light on it, quantum computes. So we're in a new era. Um, I'll give you the opinion of uh, one of my favorite science writers I, I read as a kid, Paul Davies. Uh, the 19th century was known as the machine age. The 20th century will go down in history as the information age, and I believe the 21st century will be the quantum age, um, which I agree with heartily. Anyway, that's, uh, that's it.